Well, hey, what's going on, First Church? So glad to see you guys. If you're new, my name's Chad. Welcome, and we are pumped that you are here today to worship with us. And we have a bunch of people joining us online as well. I just looked, we've got Lori and Danny who are on their way back from Nashville, Robin from Kansas, the Long family who's in Sperry, Oklahoma, joining us, Kylie Ann who's in Mexico right now, and Kim who is worshiping with us for the very first time, and a whole bunch of others. So if you are here on site, would you put your hands together, say hello, welcome in our online family. Let them know we're excited that they are joining us for worship here today. And I am fired up for week three of our series, Let's Do This, because we as a church believe that we're not here to waste time, but that God has placed us in this moment in history in order to do something significant, do something great for him. That's why we have passages in the Bible like this one right here from the book of Ephesians. When Paul writes, make the most of every opportunity in these evil days, don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. See, Paul acknowledges we're living in evil times. There's a lot of evil in our world today. If you don't believe me, just turn on the news and you see that evil constantly. But we're not supposed to run from the darkness, hide from it, or just ignore it. We're here to lead our culture. We're here to make a difference in this world. God doesn't want us to be space takers, but difference makers in the culture around us. And that's why Jesus tells his followers this. He says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and pray your father in heaven. We're here to infiltrate the darkness. We're here to invade the darkness with light. And by shining Christ's light to others, we change the world around us. We lead the culture around us. Now I know that's a big task. Changing people's lives, changing a culture, changing the world. It's a big task, but it's not too big for our God. Because even though we are living in crazy times, chaotic times, uncertain times, one thing is always certain, no matter what. And that's this, that God's got this. No matter what is going on in the world around us, no matter what we see on the news, no matter what's happening overseas or in our own country, no matter what is going on in the world around us, we have to believe that God's got this and live like it as well. So let me ask you, are you living like God's got this? That God's plan will be carried out? that God is in control, that he is in charge, that he is reigning on the throne. Are you living like God's got this? Because one thing that I have discovered over time is this. There is a seismic difference between believing in God and trusting God. See, there's a lot of people who believe in God, believe in God's existence, believe that he's there, believe that his word is even true. There's a difference between that and actually living like you trust him. You know, every time I think of the concept of trust, what comes to mind for me for some reason, I don't know why, but is a trust fall. You guys have probably done this before, you know, where you fall back into somebody's arms and you trust that they will catch you or maybe a group of people will catch you. And I'm not sure if you've tried this before, but I saw a video this week of a dad and a daughter who were trying to demonstrate this. They're trying to film it. I think it was like a homework assignment. And I want you to take a look at how it played out. She's going to fall, and I'm going to catch her. So step forward your arms out for me. Now, I'm going to catch you. Okay, I promise. Go ahead and fall. Now, see, I'm catching you, but you're putting your foot back. Don't Daddy, put your foot back. Maybe you're catching Just me. Just a minute, sweetheart. I'll be right with you, okay? Sit right there. Put your arms out. Daddy. Calf care. Oh, oh no. 
Now, I don't know if that was staged, if it really happened, but either way, it proves my point that if you're going to take a risk, then you need to be you need to be able to trust the person that you're taking a risk for. And that's why the Bible tells us that we are able to trust God. You know, my kids, they love to do trust falls. They love to do this. Sometimes when they're bored, we were in FC Tulsa game just the other day and we had lawn tickets. So we were out in the grassy area waiting for the game to start. They were bored. And so they were just like, mommy, daddy, let's do trust falls. And we're like, okay. So I'm catching Alex as he falls back into my arms. He's 10 years old. My wife is catching Addie. She's six. And then Alex turned to Addie, his little sister, and said, why don't you fall back into my arms and I'll catch you? And she looked at him and goes, nope, just like that. (laughs) And I looked at Addie and I'm like, what's the matter? You don't believe that your brother can catch you? He's big enough to catch you. And she goes, oh, he can, but he won't. And so she knew right away that she couldn't trust him. You know, there's a difference between believing that someone can do something and trusting that they will. The Bible tells us this about our God. In Proverbs 3, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. See, the Bible tells us we can trust God even when it doesn't make sense because he is crafting a bigger story than just our personal story. And he's in charge and he sees all and he loves us and, he's, and he knows what's best for us. And even when what happens in our lives doesn't make sense, even when it goes against our personal instincts, we're not to lean on our own understanding, but we're to trust him. And when we do, he will make our path straight. And the reason why we trust him, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we don't understand why things are happening the way that they're happening, it's because of this, listen to what God says. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, our story is part of a bigger story that God is writing, that God is crafting for his creation. And we have to trust that he knows what is best, And we have to trust the end of our story to him. And that's a lesson that sometimes is hard for us to understand and comprehend, especially when we're in the middle of a scene in our lives that's full of trouble, that's full of hardships, when we're struggling. And we're gonna look today at a moment in the Old Testament from the life of Elisha, when there was a couple who was going through some troublesome times. And they learn through these times to trust God. And in this series, let's do this. You guys know this. We've been looking at the life of the prophet Elisha from the Old Testament. Now, Elisha succeeded Elijah as the main primary prophet over Israel. And we hear a whole lot about Elijah, but Elisha doesn't get a whole lot of airtime in the church today. But we're a church, we even preach the obscure passages. You know, we wanna preach the whole counsel of God. And we're looking at the life of Elisha because even though his life is not as well known, there's some powerful stuff in it that I believe God wants us to learn from. And so last week, we looked at how Elisha went to a poor widow and her two young children and how he took care of them, how God took care of them. And today we're gonna look at how Elisha interacts with another family, a godly couple who is pretty influential in their their area, in their region, but 
they were still experiencing some troubles themselves. And their story is found in 2 Kings chapter four. So if you have your Bible, if you wanna turn there, we're gonna be at verse eight. And this couple that we're gonna meet that Elisha encounters is from the town or the village called Shunem. So I want you guys to say Shunem with me on the count of three. Are you ready? One, two, three. Shunem, Gesundheit. All right, bless you. But Shunem is an obscure village. You may never have heard of it, and that's okay because what happens here is something that, well, we can learn from. See, we don't know a whole lot about this couple that lived in Shunem. We know their names, we don't know their background, we're not getting a lot of details about their lives, but we do know a few things. First of all, this couple, they feared God. They worshiped God and they believed that Elisha was God's prophet. In a time when a lot of people were rebelling against God, they followed God. Two, they had great financial resources. They were an influential couple. In fact, the Bible even refers to them as a well-to-do family. They had great financial resources that God had blessed them with. But three, they couldn't have children. They wanted children. They had tried for years to have children, but they couldn't have children. And we meet them in 2 Kings chapter four, and this is how their story begins, verse eight. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make him a small room on the roof and put in a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. So Shunem was this farming village that was about 15 or 20 miles south of Mount Carmel. If you look at a map, Mount Carmel was where Elisha's home base was. It's where he set up shop, basically. But then he would travel all throughout the region to do God's work, to minister on behalf of God. And so when he would go south, he needed a place to stay. So he would either need to find an inn or an Airbnb or a Motel 6 or something, you know, to stay. And so what this Shunemite couple says is, he doesn't need to find a place to stay when he comes south anymore. We will provide for him a room. But they didn't just provide for him a room. It says they built a room onto their house, to the top of their house. And they put a bed in there and a table and a lamp so he could rest, he could study, he could do whatever he needed to do. And by putting this room on the top of his house, that meant there was probably like a back staircase that went up to the second floor so that he wouldn't even have to like ask or tell them when he was coming. He could just stay there whenever he wanted to. It was his space, it was his room free of charge. And this was a great gift that this couple gave Elisha so that he could have a place to stay whenever he traveled south. And what I love about this couple is they were willing to do whatever they could do in order to invest in God's kingdom work. I mean, this is a couple that probably never, you know, called down fire from heaven like Elijah did before Elisha or part of the Jordan River like Elijah or Elisha did or saw any great or performed any great miracles, you know, or anything like that. They probably never stood on a stage or, you know, had any type of public role, but they did what they could do. And God had blessed them with great financial resources. And so they provided a room for Elisha. But even though they had great financial resources and even though they were well-to-do and influential in their community, they were still experiencing a lot of pain because the Bible tells us that they were unable to conceive a child. Now that's heartbreaking for any married couple who wants to have children to be unable to conceive a child. 
But this, was a bit, this would have been especially difficult in this day and age because in this day and age, there was some stigma attached to that. If you were barren, if you were unable to have children, the culture around you believed that you were being cursed. Cursed by God, if you believed in the one true God, or if you believed in the pagan gods, you were cursed by the gods. But either way, you were cursed. You had done something to deserve this, and people would have looked at you differently. Not only that, this couple didn't have an heir to their estate. Remember, they're wealthy. They've got a lot of land. They have a lot of influence and power, but they've got nobody to pass their estate onto. They don't have an heir, and that was a big deal in this day and age. So even though they have a lot when it comes to possessions and money and land and all that, they still were experiencing pain. See, pain is a universal language that we all speak. And it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, doesn't matter how much status you have, doesn't matter how godly you are, doesn't matter how many times you show up to church. None of us are exempt from pain and trouble and suffering because we live in a fallen world. And because sin has entered this world, all of us experience pain, suffering, trouble, hardships. It's a universal language that we are all fluent in. And that's why Jesus says in the gospel of John, he says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus doesn't say, if you follow me, if you believe in me, then I'm gonna take away your trouble. He doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say, if you believe in me, if you have faith in me, then you won't experience any trouble at all, or at least not real trouble. You, know, you may have a hangnail every now and then, but not trouble like everybody else. He doesn't say that. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus said it, but we don't want to believe it. We want to avoid it. And yet Jesus warns us, you will experience trouble. It doesn't matter if you're a follower of mine or not, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Meaning the trouble that you experience in this life, the trouble that you experience in this moment will not define who you are. But the trouble that you experience is just a moment, it's just a scene, it's not your story. Continue to trust the end of your story to me because God still has a plan for you, a purpose for you beyond whatever it is that you are experiencing right now. And what our troubles remind us of is this, that we're living for a bigger story, that what we are currently experiencing is not all that there is. And that's why Jesus goes on to say, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Believe that I got this. Live like I got this. I am still God. No matter what you see around you, no matter what the news media tells you, no matter what someone else does to you, no matter what you're experiencing right now, trust in me. And that's what this godly couple in 2 Kings does. They trust God. Because they could have been mad at God for not being able to have children, could have been frustrated with him, disappointed with him at the point that they just wanted to not have anything to do with him. But instead, what do they do? They do what they can in order to advance his cause. And so what can they do? They have financial means and resources. And so they go to this man of God, Elisha, who is preaching God's truth, and they build him a room. And we may think, okay, it's just a room, but it's more than that. 
By building Elisha a room, they were investing in God's kingdom work. They were becoming a part of God's story, of what God was trying to accomplish and do in the world around them. And guys, you may never stand on a stage like I am right now. You may never lead a worship song. You may never teach a class in church or have your picture on a church website. You may never hold a public service role in our church, but it doesn't mean that God can't use you and it doesn't mean that you are not important to his plan because even those who are behind the scenes are used by God to make eternal differences in the lives of people. And like I said, you may never stand on a stage, but you might make a difference in somebody's life by baking them a batch of cookies or by going over and visiting them and praying with them or by being a greeter in our church and having a welcoming face and attitude when somebody walks through the door, by being a golf cart driver that picks up a single mom who's bringing in, you know, eight kids or something. You just never know how you could help somebody else and you may never get any public credit for it, but God knows and God uses all of us See, that's why Paul writes this. He says, we are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. We all have different gifts. We all have different abilities. I don't have the same gifts you have and you don't have the same gifts that I have, but we all work together for God's common mission and he uses all of us. And one thing I love is whenever we have our Discover First Church lunch and classes and, you know, we have people who come who are ready to, you know, be part of our church, be members, partners with our church. And I'll ask sometimes, you know, why are you here? Or how did you know that this was going to be the place that was going to be your church home or whatever? And sometimes people will say, oh, you know, we just knew when we heard the worship the first time. Or we just knew when, well, every now and like once every three years, somebody would say the sermon was good or, you know, something like that. They'll, they'll make a comment. But the majority of the time, it's not one of those things. They'll say, you know, so-and-so invited us to come to church. And here's the thing. I don't even know when they tell me who so-and-so is. They come to our church and they love it, but I don't recognize the name right off the bat. I go look them up like, oh yeah, I know who that person is. But this is a person who just invited a neighbor or a friend or a coworker to church and it made a difference in their life. Or sometimes people will say, from the moment we walked in and the greeters met us and they gave us a tour of the place, we just knew how, this was a friendly, welcoming church. We've even had people say, believe it or not, that they were impressed with our golf cart drivers. Golf cart drivers can make an eternal difference, okay? Just go the speed limit, guys, but you can. You can make an eternal difference. God can use you if you will open yourself up to being used by him. And this couple, they may have never called down fire from heaven like Elijah did. May have never part of the Red Sea like Elijah or Elisha did, but they could build a room for a prophet. And God used that. And so as we read on in verse 11, it says this. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and he lay down there and he said to his servant, his assistant, Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, tell her you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. In other words, Elisha, I appreciate it, but I have everything I need. I'm content where God has placed me. That's kind of an odd statement because we know 
that she can't have a child. And she and her husband have wanted a child. And we would think that as she has a prophet of God before her who's done all these great and mighty miracles, that when he says, what can we do for you? She would say, well, you know, I've always wanted a child. But she doesn't. You know why? Because she didn't build this room for Elisha to get something back. She built this room for Elisha because she loved God. She wanted to further God's cause. And she wanted to show respect to God's servant, Elisha. It wasn't to get anything in return. It's because she was all in when it came to God's purpose. And she was content where she was. They had prayed and prayed for years to have, have a child. And God had not answered that prayer the way they wanted. So they just accepted that this was God's will. This was God's plan. And even though I'm sure they were disappointed, they knew that their story was part of God's bigger story. And they had to trust the ending of their story to him. You know, sometimes people think, Man, if I could just have this or that, then I'd be happy, then I'd be content. If I could just live in that neighborhood or if I could just drive that car or have that job or make this amount of money or if I could just get married or have this friendship or have kids, then I'd be happy. And none of those things in and of themselves are necessarily wrong. But if you're trying to find lasting happiness and contentment in any of that stuff, you're never gonna find it because it's only found in, in having a relationship with God. She had God. So when the prophet asked her, do you need anything? She's like, I have enough. But Elisha doesn't stop there. After she leaves, he turns to his assistant and he says, what can be done for her? Elisha asked. And Gehazi said, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her, bring her back in. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. And what's interesting is when you read on, she's like, no, no, I'm really, I'm good. I'm content. I don't have to have that. And I don't want you to get my hopes up. I've been wanting a child for so long. It's even hard for me to believe that I could ever have one. I'm good. I really am. And Elisha's like, listen, God's not done writing your story yet. Trust him. And sure enough, a year later, she's holding a baby boy in her arms. She gets pregnant. Nine months or so later, she has a baby. She gets to raise a son like she's always wanted. What a cool story, right? And this would be a great place for us to end this story of Elisha and this Shunammite couple. Be a great place in the story, right? She gets her child, it's, everything's good in the world, right? But that's not how the story ends. There's more. And what happens next, probably none of us would have ever predicted. See, the boy grows up and now he's a teenager and he's out working in the fields with his dad he starts to complain of having a headache and the headache gets more and more severe and painful. So this is what happens. As we read on, it says, his father told a servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon and then he died. What? That's not how this is supposed to happen, right? That's not how this works. This kid was a gift from God. And now he's dead? What? I mean, what's going on here? I'm gonna talk more about it here in just a second, but before I do, this is a reminder to all of us. All of us, every single one of us. We're only one breath away from eternity. That may be a morbid thought. We may not wanna talk about it, but the Bible gives us this warning over and over again. It doesn't matter 
how godly you are. It doesn't matter how many times you come to church, how much money you have, influence you have, whatever. It doesn't matter. All of us, every single one of us will face death one day and we don't know when that day will come. All of us are always one breath away from eternity. So the question we have to ask is, who's writing our story? Because when we breathe our last, whenever that day comes, have we been trying to write our own story? Because if we have been, we're headed for destruction. That's gonna be the end of our story. But if we've been letting God write our story, then what the world sees as the end is not the end. And we know God has something even better planned for us. And as I say that, I don't say it as like a hypothetical question or just as something that a preacher might say that you need to think about. I say that because I believe it. A lot of people, a lot of you know what my family experienced about a year ago when my wife stopped breathing and almost died. I thought I'd lost her. And in that moment, I was confused and I was scared and I had no idea what was happening and I had no idea what the outcome was gonna be. But I did know one thing. I knew that whatever happened in that moment, it was not going to be the end of my wife's story. I knew who was holding the pen to her story. And I was trusting her story to him. And I say that not to brag on myself or put the attention on us. I say that because folks, I'm not up here preaching fairy tales. This isn't just motivational talk. I believe what I preach. This church believes what we teach here, that God does have a bigger story that we are living for. And even though we may not understand why things happen to us in the moment, we know that we are part of his bigger plan. We know that he is in charge. He is on the throne. And no matter what, we can be part of his victorious story that is found in Jesus Christ. And so we live every day knowing that no matter what happens to us, God's got this. And he's gonna do what's best for us. Even if it doesn't make sense to, to us in the moment. So what does this woman do? She runs to God. She went up and laid her boy on the bed of the man of God, on Elisha's bed in that room that they built for him. Then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. See, what do we do when we get stuck? What do we do when we feel trapped? What do we do when we don't think we have any other place to turn? What do we do when we feel enslaved? We run to the one who started our story because we know he's still writing it. So that's what this woman did. She went to Elisha, the man of God, and she tells Elisha what's going on. She travels 15 to 20 miles to get to Elisha and Elisha is clueless. He has no idea what's happening, what's going on. But Elisha says, okay, I'll come to your house. And so Elisha comes to the house and this is what happens. It says that when Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in and he shut the door on the two of them, Elisha and just the boy. And he prayed to the Lord. Now I want you to know something about Elisha. Elisha didn't show up to say, okay, now I'm gonna do a mighty miracle of God. I want the whole town to see it. He went in and he shut the door in private and he prayed to God. You know why? Because Elisha knew that God values faithfulness over flashiness. And you could do flashy things even in God's name and still not have the right heart. 
And anytime I meet somebody who's all about parading their works of righteousness for other people to see all the time, I always wonder about their heart because God values faithfulness, not flashiness. Elisha shuts the door, just goes in by himself and he prays and he prays for God to do a miracle, for God to work in that moment. And imagine being the mom. She's left on the outside of the door. In fact, from the way the text reads, she stays downstairs and all she can do is wait. Well, all she can do is trust. Trust that God's got this. Trust that God will take care of them. Trust that God will do what is best. Imagine what she's feeling in this moment. It's, cold, it's totally out of her control. There's nothing she can do to fix this situation. All she can do is trust God. And isn't that what faith is all about? You see, the true test of our faith is not how you respond when you have all your questions answered. It's how you respond when all you have is unanswered questions. And that's this woman, she's trusting God. Remember that passage from John 14 that we looked at earlier? When Jesus says, trust in God, trust also in me. That word trust in Greek that Jesus uses actually can be translated weight. Because what we place our weight on is what we're placing our trust in. See, we're all carrying weight of some sort or another in life, aren't we? We're carrying around weight. And whenever we place our weight on, that's what we're placing our trust in. I once heard Kyle Eidelman from Southeast Christian Church use a walker to illustrate what this text means. I thought it was a great illustration. If you know anybody who uses a walker, you know why they do. They need something to put their weight on in order for them to move forward. That's how a walker works. You put your weight on it and then you're able to take a step forward. You put your weight on it and you take another step forward. And that's how God works because we're not able to go forward on our own. We need something to put our weight on. And a lot of people are struggling in life because they're trying to put their weight on something that can't hold them up. They're trying to put their weight on something that doesn't work. But God says, come to me and I can hold you up. And if you'll trust me one day at a time, one step at a time, one moment at a time, one scene at a time. If you'll place all your weight on me, I'll get you through it and you'll be able to move forward and you'll be able to go where I wanna take you, where you need to go. Just continue to put your weight on me and I'll hold you up. That's what the life of faith looks like. One step at a time, putting all of our weight on God. That's what this woman does. You know what happens? Take some time. The miracle is an instant, but eventually God uses Elisha to breathe life back into her son. Her son rises from the dead. And this is only the second example in all the Bible that we have of God bringing somebody back from the dead. He'll do it again after this, but this is only the second time in the Bible that this has happened so far. The first time was during the ministry of Elijah, Elisha's predecessor. And now it's happened again during Elisha. Remember, different time, different leaders, same God. And so now we see the second example of resurrection taking place. And this boy is returned to his mom. The passage says, 
The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. I think that's kind of cool, you know? <laughs> Sneezes seven times and he opens his eyes. And Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. And he did. And when she came, he said, take your son. She came in, fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. I mean, what a cool story, right? We see God's hand at work. We see nothing is impossible for him. We see God's power on display. Right when she thought her story was over, God was still writing her story. What a powerful story. What a powerful moment. And when I grew up studying this passage, this is where the story ended. But there's more. It doesn't end here. This would be a great place for it to end, wouldn't it? And if your kids ever learn about this in children's church, they're probably gonna stop right here. But this isn't where the story ends, there's more. This is chapter four. A lot of other things happen. Jump to chapter eight of 2 Kings. In chapter eight, what we find out is there's a famine that comes upon the land. But before the famine comes, Elisha goes to this family who he loves and trusts. And Elisha says, hey, there's a famine coming. You all might wanna get out of town so you can survive it. Go to the Philistine country. They're not gonna experience a famine. So this family, the Shunammite family, they go to Philistine and they live there seven years in order to avoid this famine. But while they're gone, some people come in and steal their land back in Israel. They take over their home. You know, they're squatters. They take over their house. They take over their stuff. They steal their property. And so when the famine's done after seven years, this Shunammite family returns home and somebody's living on their land, living in their house. So what does this woman do? She goes to the king to beg for her land back because it belongs to her family. And what's interesting is on the very day that this woman shows up to go before the king to beg for her land back, the king of Israel at this time, who wasn't a firm believer in God, was interested in the God of Israel. And so he calls in Gehazi, remember Elisha's servant, and asks Gehazi to talk about all the stuff that God has been doing through the prophet Elisha. And so Gehazi goes through and he's talking about all the miracles, all these great miracles that God has done through Elisha. And right at the moment when Gehazi gets to the part where Elisha, where God used Elisha to bring back the Shunammite woman's son, look at what happens. Just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to beg the king for her house and land. And Gehazi said, that's the woman, that's her, my lord, the king. And this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. I mean, just imagine this, this is God's timing, isn't it? Right as Gehazi is telling about how God used Elisha to bring this woman's son back to life, all of a sudden the door opens and, uh, and Gehazi looks over and says, wait a second, that's her. I haven't seen her for years, but that's her. And that's her son, that's her walking miracle right there. And you know what the king does? The king who's been a little shaky in his own faith does this, the king asked the woman to tell her story. And she told him everything that had happened. He then said to one of his officials, I want you to make sure that this woman gets back everything that belonged to her, including the money her crops have made since the day she left Israel. See, what happens here is this king wanted to hear about God. And in the very moment that he wanted to hear about God, God places in his throne room a woman 
with her walking miracle, her son who'd been brought back from the dead. And this woman who never called down fire from heaven or part of the Jordan River was able to stand before the most powerful man in the land and testify about the God who loved her and who has a plan for the entire world. And in that moment, she gets to tell her story, which is God's story, and none of this would have happened if she and her husband years ago hadn't believed that Elisha was a prophet sent from God. If she and her husband hadn't built a room on the top of their house for Elisha the prophet. If they hadn't welcomed him there and allowed for Elisha to stay there time and time again. If Elisha hadn't said she was gonna have a son and that son had been born. Never would have happened if that son hadn't got a headache and died. Probably the most tragic moment in her life, part of her life that she would have liked to have deleted, end up being a cause for her to talk about later. And then Elisha, God used Elisha to bring the boy back to life. And then eventually there's a famine that comes. You think, can't this couple catch a break? But a famine comes and they move to the Philistine country. And in the Philistine country, while they're there, somebody steals their home and their land. We're thinking, man, it just goes from bad to worse. But then they come back, and when they come back, she goes to petition for a land back from the king. And when she goes to beg for a land back, there God orchestrates an opportunity for her to tell the most powerful man in the area about who God is and what God has done for her. See, as we look back at her story, there's ups and downs and ups and downs. And there's moments where I'm sure she wished she could delete. But the one thing that was consistent through her entire life was that God got this. God had it all in his hands. God was in control and he was weaving the story, using it all in order for his bigger story to play out. And the same is true for you and me. Don't get stuck in a moment. Don't get trapped in a scene. You are part of God's bigger story. And let all of us today trust the end of our story to him. And right now, if you're not living for his bigger story, he is inviting you to be a part of it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for today and this opportunity we've had to open up your word. And we just pray that as your people, we would be those who remember we are part of your bigger story. Let us not get trapped in the moment we're in, but let us live for your bigger plan. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.